And we are back for round two today on this beautiful Wednesday, this awesome uh, St. Patty's Day. Uh, I hope you're all ready because we're going to have a three-minute therapy session. <laughs> Check this out. Practicing polyamory, real-life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody, welcome to round two on this beautiful Wednesday. Welcome back, welcome back. Just a quick reminder of these three things that I'm always asking you guys, uh, you all at the beginning of the show here. Number one, if you are if you haven't already, subscribe on YouTube. Do a search for Practicing Polyamory Podcast and hit that subscribe button. I'm this close to getting my 100 subscribers so I can get my custom URL, and uh, that'll make me super happy. And then also make sure that you are following me on all social medias at Practicing Poly A. Number two, I'm really excited about this one. I'm going to have Dr. Eli Chef next Friday, March 26th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. So go to Bonding project.com take that bonding type test so that you can learn your idea of bonding and know what we're going to be talking about next friday and lastly most importantly if you're listening to this podcast you are a welcome guest on the show whatever your background if you're polyamorous or polycurious uh whether you're gay straight queer lesbian trans nb arrows ace whatever it is i want to hear your stories the more stories we hear the more the world learns about us and the better we can serve our community all right, that's my three things. The last most important thing is to introduce our guest. Our guest today has a unique approach to therapy that provides massive results in a short amount of time. His approach is active directive and present oriented, which I take to mean that he'll show you how to take action here and now. His strength is in teaching you how to be your own therapist so that you're not dependent on him for months or years. Our guest is a nationally and internationally recognized expert in his field, and he's one of the few practitioners of rational emotive behavior therapy, and I can't wait to hear about that. With this methodology, he can help you, uh, better said, teach you how to immediately take charge of your life. Joining us today from the Bay Area, author of the best-selling book, Three Minute Therapy, welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Edelstein. <laughs> Welcome thank to you. the show. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, I want to also mention to all of our listeners out there, uh, if you have any questions for Dr. Edelstein, he is taking questions. So I'm going to go ahead and throw this up uh, right there. Ask a question and get an answer live on the show. So, Dr. Edelstein, let's start with talking about you, first of all. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me a little bit about uh, REBT and why you chose that route. Okay, great question. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been practicing for over 40 years. And I hooked up with Albert Ellis when I was 18. And Dr. Albert Ellis is the founder of a radical school of psychotherapy. It's not radical anymore because it's mm -hmm. largely been adopted. But Got in it. the 50s, uh, he um, pioneered with REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, 
when most therapists were doing more traditional therapy, where you talk about your childhood to find out why you have problems now. But what Al Albert Ellis teaches is that you have problems now, not because of your childhood, but because of your current thinking, philosophy, attitudes, beliefs, the ideas in your head cause your depression, jealousy, anger, resentment, anxiety, or addictions, not your dysfunctional family or your addicted parents, but mm -hmm. it's your thinking right now that causes your emotions. And that, I'm sure we'll go back to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds very empowering, uh, it, you know, from, from the way that you're describing it. It sounds like if I'm an individual that blames all of my problems on my upbringing and my past and the way that I was raised as a kid and all these different things, I'm giving that power away to those external forces. But with REBT, I'm able to take take back that power, take back that control and say, no, I have the power to change today. Is that exactly well said? Well said. Yes, you have the power to change your life. You don't have to rely on experts, therapists, any people like that. Just learn the basic principles and you will have the power. So I want to mention a few of the basic principles. Sure. The first principle is that our emotions come from our thinking, as I just mentioned. And there's a particular type of thinking that causes disturbed emotions, such as anxiety, depression, anger, resentment, procrastination, and addictions. Mm -hmm. And that's thinking in terms of demands. Musts, shoulds, supposed tos, have tos, demands mm. we put on ourselves, others, and situations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are three main categories of demands. Demands on oneself, others, and situations. So demand on oneself takes the form of because I prefer to do well and get approval, therefore I absolutely must. I have to have your approval. I must not fail. And if I do, I'm no good. That causes anxiety, depression, jealousy, embarrassment, guilt, and many other emotions. Hang on, I feel attacked here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I mean, that that literally is me. I talk about this all the time. I'm my own worst critic. I'm the one that's, you know, always talking about the things that I should be doing. I give myself a hard time for taking, you know, any time to myself, really. As an entrepreneur, I feel like 24-7, I need to be working and, you know, even taking a little bit of time off it's it's tough sometimes and that's that external force uh but you said that that was that was the me part of it yeah that's the you part of it or the ego part of it the other part of it is others must treat me fair reasonably considerately lovingly courteously reciprocally etc mm -hmm. and if they don't they're no good Mm -hmm. They're rotten people. And then the third must of the three musts is not a demand on oneself or others. It's a demand on the impersonal conditions of one's life. And that takes the form of my life or my situation should be fair, easy, and hassle-free. And if I have the slightest hassle or unfairness, then 
that should not occur and my life is no good. I'll be miserable forever or escape into drugs and alcohol and other addictions. So those are the three main musts. And as you mentioned, James, earlier, I teach people to be their own therapist. And simply the way you do that is you identify your demand, the must, the should, the dire necessitizing, the have to, and then you hold it up to the light of day and ask yourself, what's the evidence? Who says I must do well all the time? Mm -hmm. Or where is it written that I have to have your approval 100% of the time? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I could just use you as uh, a Please do. Yeah. So you said you have the idea that you need to work 24-7. Right. And so that sounds like it leads to driving yourself, driven behavior, addicted behavior, loss of sleep, worry, those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. So, so Nailing it so far. Yeah, and you've nailed the demand. I need to be working all the time. And then if you want to uproot that, you would ask yourself again and again and again, is this true? What's the evidence? Because it has advantages to work all the time. I get mm -hmm. more out. I'm more productive, mm -hmm. et cetera. What's the evidence? Because I prefer to, therefore, I absolutely must work all the time. And what's the answer? I, I The answer is I can't work all the time. Like it's, right. it's physically impossible. Exactly. exactly. I wear out. Yes. Yes. Right. So you can't work all the time and you wear out. So it's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. So you could say as an ideal, I prefer to work all the time, but the disadvantages of doing so outweigh the advantages. So I'll pay attention to the greater disadvantages and allow myself to sleep, eat, and breathe and do other things rather than working all the time. And that's not a, a one-shot cure. It means practicing again and again and again, identifying your irrational beliefs, whether it's the first demand, the second, or the third, and questioning it and showing yourself there's never any evidence to support musts and shoulds. There's nothing you must do except mainly maybe die one day <laughs> and maybe in 100, in 100 years, they'll have a cure for that. <laughs> but but uh, there's really nothing you must do. There are just things that it would be highly preferable to do. And the worst that happens, if you don't do it, you don't turn into a loser or worthless failure. You just have disadvantages. Right. I just maybe won't get as far as I want to. And I guess the, the must comes from the goals that I set for myself. You know, I have financial goals or health goals or relationship goals or whatever. And if I'm not actively working towards those goals, then I'm I'm that much less likely to achieve them. Yes. Right. But yeah, that's partially right. The last part was correct, James. But you said the must, your demand comes from your goals, the demand does, doesn't come from your goals. The demand comes from your thinking about your goals mm -hmm. because you have goals to be very productive. But then you could say, I prefer to be as productive as I can within reason, get sleep, 
eat properly, etc. But I don't have to, so I'll sacrifice a little productivity for health and maybe even a less stressed life. So again, it's not the situation A, A is the activating event, uh, which in this case is your goal to be Mm -hmm. very productive, that causes C, your undesirable emotional consequence, say, lack of sleep, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but rather it's B, your belief about it. I must be optimally productive. And if I'm not, it's awful. So I'll work myself to the bone uh, no matter what the consequences. So it's always B, your belief that causes C, your emotional consequences, never A. So it's not the goal itself. It's what I believe about the goal. Exactly, especially your demands. Now, if we were to apply this to polyamory, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the problems people I work with in polyamorous relationships have, which is natural, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them, is jealousy. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That they feel jealous of their partner's other relationships. So, again, it's not your partner. Uh, spending the night with someone else that forces you to be jealous. Mm-hmm. But rather, again, it's your belief, your be. And normally we're looking for a must or a should or a need. And often with jealousy, it's something like, I must be with my partner 100% of the time. Or I must be number one in my partner's eyes 24 7 And if I'm not, if he or she is having fun with someone else, then this proves I'm a loser. There's something rotten about me. So we see the same structure here, a situation. In this case, your partner spending time with someone else. You're must about it. I must be number one all the time. He or she must be with me all the time or be thinking about me all the time. And that leads to the jealousy. So again, the solution is, Uproot your must, get rid of your musty thinking, your demands, your absolutes, and show yourself, reinforce the preferences underneath that, that I strongly prefer to be with my partner all the time. But since I'm committed to polyamory, that's not reality. And in order to have the advantages of a polyamorous relationship, it means having some disadvantages. You're not going to get all advantages of any choice in life and not have disadvantage. It sounds like it means also uh, attacking or changing those beliefs, those underlying, uh, the B the that you mentioned. The belief is that if my partner is spending time with someone else, then that devalues me. Right. right? So right. how do we attack that? How do we get underneath that to start shifting that around so that, we are valuing ourselves and understanding what our value is and not seeing someone else as competition. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the answer is by again, having a questioning attitude and asking yourself, does it devalue me as a person? Am I less of a person if my partner spends time with someone else or even in the, Hardest scenario, my partner leaves me for someone else. Does that make me less of a person? And the answer is clearly no. 
you can't be less of a person. You're always a whole person. I guess you can make a case if you lose your arm in an accident, you're less of a person. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit less, I guess. Yeah, right. But psychologically, you're still the same imperfect human who acts imperfectly, never less. Or if your partner loves you so much that you can't uh, put up with it, that doesn't make you a better person. You're still the same imperfect human. This gets I love back, that. Yeah, this gets back to the problem with self-esteem. And most uh, self-esteem authors and psychologists say that, that if you're depressed, you have low self-esteem, which is often the case. But then they go off and they say the solution to low self-esteem is high self-esteem. In other words, seeing the good things about yourself, you're not so bad, you care about people, you're supporting your family, etc. So uh, have high self-esteem. But low and high self-esteem falls into the same trap, and that's called the self-rating trap. Rating your total self, your personhood, your being, your essence, in terms of your behavior. So if you do well at the job today and your manager tells you, good job, uh, that doesn't make you a better person. You could rate your behavior. I did well today. Mm -hmm. I acted uh, exactly as I wanted. So rating your behavior is good, but then don't overgeneralize to your total self Therefore, I'm a good person. Right, right. My um, actions don't necessarily divine, define my value or my worth. Exactly. My Well said. My actions don't define my value or my worth. So then the question is, what does define your value or your worth? Uh, what, what could you do to feel like you're a valuable, worthless, worthwhile person? And the answer is nothing. Because no matter how well you do, you're Mother Teresa, and you really help people, uh, that doesn't make you a better person. That's just your actions. And people are a process. People are always changing. So you, mm -hmm. might, you might do well at the job today or fall flat on your face at the job tomorrow. So then which are you, a good person or a bad person? Obviously, neither an imperfect human who does well at times and does poorly at times. And that's you, that's me, that's everyone who ever existed. And that's called unconditional self-acceptance. I rate love your, that. Now, the reason why it's important to rate your behavior, and bear in mind here, we're not throwing out all judgment, all evaluation, all rating. It is important to rate your behavior because if you rate your behavior and decide you did well at work today, then the question is, how did you do well? What did you do? And when I identify that, then I can continue to do well. And if I rate my behavior at work as poor, then I can ask myself, what did I do that was poor that I could change in the future? Right. So uh, rate your behavior, judge your behavior, not your total self. And you could compare yourself to others. Uh, so I'm not saying don't make any comparison with, with others or other people's um, performance. For example, I could say that you, 
uh, are very articulate. You have a very uh, skilled production here with your podcast, more so than oh, thank mine. You. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Certainly more so than mine. Mine is more amateurish. So I can say you're doing better in that area and compare myself or at least my doing with your doing, but not go the next step off the cliff and say, therefore, you're a better person and then I'm a worse person. Right. And that's the difference. I, I, I love the way that you approach that, too. It's it's asking that question of, is this true? Right. It's, you know. No. If, if I have a better production, I mean, I've been doing the podcasting for three years. My brother and I, we have almost 700 episodes under our belt. You know, we've been we've been at this for quite some time. Uh, and so if somebody else coming into the podcasting space sees what we're doing and, you know, they've only had 20 podcasts under their belt and they're nowhere near our level, all of a sudden their self-esteem could just get shot down because they're like, oh, wow, look at what these guys are doing. And look at how awesome they are. I must be worthless. But taking that and spinning it and saying, is this true? Is it true right. that somebody else doing something better than me makes me worthless? Right. And we can always go back and say, no, of course, that's not true. Right. You're always just an imperfect human in process, not a bad person, never a bad person, never a good person. Now that goes for other people also. And so we can move away from self-esteem to anger and resentment. The reason you get angry at people who treat you poorly is because you're making the same error. You're evaluating their behavior. They treated me poorly, which is fine to evaluate, and then rating their total self. They're no good. They're rotten. They're a bad person because they're treating me poorly. But again, what's the evidence? What's the proof? There's no proof that as an entire person, they're bad. It's just their behavior and they could change tomorrow. So that means all anger, resentment, hostility goes out the window. When you give up your muss, then you no longer make yourself angry, rip yourself up inside, give yourself high blood pressure, but rather you don't want to go to the other extreme and be a doormat and let people walk all over you. Mm -hmm. So you still have preferences. I prefer you not treat me that way, or I prefer you do X instead of Y when we're together. But uh, that doesn't make you a bad person. So express your preferences and what you would like from another person in a considerate way, not an angry way, but no anger. Um, a writer, Harry Emerson Fosdick said, anger is like burning down your house to get rid of a rat. And that's really what you're doing. When yeah, you make yourself work. angry, you're really doing yourself in. And that obviously doesn't help and it's not a good idea. Yeah, and I mean, this is huge for, for us in polyamorous relationships and polycules uh, because a lot of times it's not even our the person that we're in, in a relationship with that we might have anger towards. It might be one of their partners 
And so approaching it uh, from, from this direction, and you're basically saying, look at that person and realize that they are an imperfect human. The fact that they did X, Y, Z, whatever that thing was, doesn't necessarily make them a, a bad person. Is, is that kind of what we're looking at here? That doesn't make them a bad person, it just makes them a, an imperfect person. And so right. I don't have to hold on to that anger and resentment towards them. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And then if you don't, if you're not angry and resentful, but you dislike what they did, you feel frustrated, displeased, uh, unhappy about their treatment, then you could more uh, supportively and calmly express the behavior you didn't like, tell them the way you would like them to behave, engage in a conversation uh, without the anger, and with, if you did that angrily, you're more likely to alienate the other person and give them less of a reason to care what you think. Well, what if they're not willing to change? Yeah, so that's a good question. Sometimes they're not willing to change. So then, uh, and then assuming you've discussed it with them, you've given them the reasons why you would like them to change, how it would improve the relationship. Uh, from your point of view, and they're still unwilling to change, or maybe they're willing to change, but they do a poor job of it, and they keep on falling back to their old obnoxious behavior, then you have a choice, and that is, do given their poor treatment of the, me, does the advantages of the relationship outweigh the disadvantages, or vice versa? And then if the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, then work on unconditional other acceptance. Just accept the fact that if you're going to have a good relationship with this friend, it means that it's going to have some problems, difficulties, frustrations. There is no ideal or perfect relationship, so it would be good practice to practice accepting poor behavior from others. Uh, or you could decide that this behavior that I don't like outweighs the advantages. So I will end the relationship and move on and find someone who I feel better about. I love it. So just to recap here, a lot of our problems, a lot of our um, anxieties and headaches and, and things that we struggle with come from the, the three musts, right? The personal, the others, and the impersonal, which is things basically just outside of our control. And when those things don't line up with what we believe is, is what we want or what we should have, that's where we start to, to fall apart. And in your three-minute therapy, which is the title of your book and it's, it's what you do, you're attacking that belief from, from what I'm gathering. You're, you're, you're attacking that B column and just helping people shift it and change it and question it to see if it's actually true. Yes, yes, it's very good. The first step is attacking, is helping them identify the must. I must do well, you must treat me well, life must go well. Help them identify the must that's creating their problem and then teaching them a method that they can undermine the must, uh, think differently, and use on their own, so they're not dependent on me for years and years like they would be in traditional therapy, who's usually going in the wrong direction anyway, 
but they <laughs> learn this method, which it sounds like you've learned very quickly already. And, uh, and then they can work on their own problems. What? I love it. it. It really does speak to to those of us in the polyamory community because we're always, you know, we put rules in our relationships and boundaries and all of these different things because we're trying to control uh, our relationships and the way that we feel about all of these different people. Um, but when it comes right down to it, it's it's always a matter of just going back to question if it's true, if those expectations and those those musts are in fact true yes and they're never not they never are true they're always not true because musts are fictions musts and shoulds are fictions just like santa claus because you don't run the universe you don't control others they'll do what they think is best not necessarily what you think is best so it's just a lesson for getting along with people in general in life maybe even more important with bosses and managers who you have even less influence over and uh, and learning unconditional acceptance of oneself, of others, and of life. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Edelstein, I want to give you an opportunity uh, to speak to our audience. If somebody wanted to work with you, if somebody wanted to talk to you a little bit more, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you and make sure for our listening audience, anybody who's not watching, anybody who's just listening on the podcast, let them know the best way to get in touch with you. Okay, very good. The best way to get in touch with me is to go to my website, as you mentioned earlier, 3minutetherapy.com. Three is spelled out, 3minutetherapy.com, the name of my book. And on the website, you'll see my email address and my phone number. So those are two of the best ways to reach me. Fantastic. Yeah. By oh, the yeah. way, I work, I work nationally and internationally because these days... Uh, it's easy enough to have uh, Zoom sessions with people all over the world, which I do. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, new normal, but it made things a lot easier. It really made the world a lot smaller. Uh, Dr. Edelstein, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Uh, I really, I feel like I learned a lot. I hope our audience did as well. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. And also thank you as always to our live audience. A quick reminder, when we're live, you get no commercial interruptions, but the same cannot be said for the podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid those commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday at 2.30 or when we have special times like today, uh, or sign up for the Patreon where you'll get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and support the show. Don't forget to go over to bondingproject.com between now and March 26th so that you'll know what Dr. Eli Sheff and I are talking about. And of course, subscribe Subscribe on YouTube if you haven't already at Practicing Polya, Practicing Polyamory Podcast on YouTube. This close. I'm this close. Thank you again, Dr. Edelstein. You're welcome. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Right, and right. Uh, yeah. everybody else, go out there, have yourself a green beer, and have a nice day. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory Podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash practicing